0: So we are in the midst of this series called Foundations, and our topic today is this, is the Bible reliable? You know, it's one of those questions that Christians get asked all the time, and we should have a good answer for it. As Christians, the very foundation of our faith is the Bible, we call it God's word. You know, we don't look to a pope, a priest, a council, or any human source of truth, we look to this book right here, the Bible. You know, everything else in life is fallible, But God has preserved for us pure truth in this book right here. So what are some questions people have about the Bible? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. Somebody once asked G.K. Chesterton, a brilliant writer of about a century ago, if you were marooned on a desert island and you could only have one book with you, what would it be? His answer was Thomas's Guide to Practical Shipbuilding. Okay. (laughs) True story about Chesterton, a really witty guy. But if you think about that, if you find yourself trapped in a desperate situation, you don't want a book that's just going to entertain you or even just educate you, right? You want to figure out, how do I get home? How do I get saved? Well, guess what? We have that type of book. You know, at first Israel, and then the church became known as a people of the book. Second Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says this, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Message Bible, which is not a literal translation, it's a paraphrase, but I like it here. It says, every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the Word, we are put together and shaped up for the tasks God has for us. Now, the million-dollar question is this, can this book right here be trusted? Thoughtful people have legitimate questions about this book. You know, has it been proven by modern science or archaeology to be unreliable? Can a modern, educated, 21st century person really take seriously the idea that texts written millennia ago were somehow inspired and preserved by God? That's the question. You know, have you ever had questions about this book right here? Yeah, I have. It contains some very basic truths, but it also contains some very confusing texts as well. The apostle Peter, he once wrote this, our dear brother Paul writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Yeah, I'm struck by Peter saying that some of what Paul wrote, man, It's tough to understand. I always wondered did Peter ever have a conversation with Paul about that? But he also says that people distort Paul's writings as they do what? The other scriptures. In other words, Peter already recognized that Paul's words have this power, this authority to them that puts them in a different category from merely human writings. So in this message, we're gonna look at honest, sincere questions. Reservations that thoughtful people have about this book right here that could keep them from taking it seriously or trusting it. And I'm going to do this in the form of objections that folks have that I think underneath contain some really good reasons for faith in this book. So let's dive in here. If you have your outlines, pull them out. First of all, some people feel like the Bible may have valuable moral insights, but it ought to be understood as a collection of myths, fables, and once upon a time kind of stories. Now, what we call the Bible is not really a book. It's 66 books written by dozens of authors over a span of 1,500 years. Just imagine somebody starting a book 1,000 a years before Columbus and then finishing it in our day. I mean, what in the world could hold all those writings together? Well, one thing that binds them together is the conviction that there is a God and He is not silent. He has revealed Himself in human history, particularly the history of Israel. This is what made the scriptures of Israel different from other ancient sacred writings of the Sumerians or the Egyptians. They took seriously the idea that God has revealed himself in human history. Author Baruch Halpern says the Jews invented the writing of history. So as we begin here, let's just take one statement from one author, Luke. Okay, we'll start with this. Luke writes, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trichonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Now, let me ask you a question. How concerned would you say Luke is with historical details? Quite concerned. Why? Because he wants people to know this is not a once upon a time kind of story. This really and truly happened in history. And people who read and study ancient literature will tell you, you simply do not find those kind of details in stories about Hercules or Thor or Isis. Luke wants people to know that this really, truly happened. Of course, that raises the question, is it truly accurate? Well, let's take a little time here and look at how so many details in this book, the Bible, have been absolutely confirmed by external sources. For example, for a long time, people who were skeptical about Jesus cited Luke 3 as a problem. Luke mentions Lysanias. Well, Lysanias was known to have lived 50 years earlier. He had a different title. He was a ruler in another town called Chalcis. And so there were people who say, you know what? Luke cannot be trusted as a writer of history until the mid-20th century. Archaeologists found an inscription written during the reign of Caesar Tiberius, that's 14 to 37 AD, that mentions Lysanias as the Tetrarch of Abilene. In other words, there were two Lysaniases, and Luke got it exactly right. But we didn't know that definitively in history until the mid-20th century. Okay, how about some other places where the New Testament gets confirmed by external sources? In Acts chapter 19, Luke identifies a man by the name of Erastus as one of Paul's helpers, a city treasurer in Corinth. And again, there were skeptical liberal scholars who said, well, you know, all of the Christians in the early church, they were taken from the lower classes of society. There's no way there could have been a guy named Erastus who was a city treasurer. But then in 1929, archaeologists excavated a first century street in Corinth and found this right here. This is the actual stone laid by Erastus 2,000 years ago. It reads, Erastus pro Adel S.P. Stravit. That third word thought to be pronounced Adel was a word for a title of someone who oversees the financial affairs of a city. In other words, in 1929, this stone laid by Erastus 1,900 years earlier was right there where he put it and proved definitively that he had the office that Luke said he had. Okay, another example. In Acts 18, Luke says the emperor Claudius gave an order for all the Jews to leave Rome. Well, outside the Bible, a Roman historian named Suetonius wrote this, because the Jews of Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Christus, it's a different spelling of Christ, Claudius expelled them from the city. Now, honestly, archaeological and historical research cannot prove definitively that everything the Bible says about God is true. And there are still questions that have not yet been resolved or confirmed, especially about the older parts of the Old Testament. But in general, a scholar named Rodney Stark summarized it this way. The major result of the many unrelenting scholarly attacks on the historical reliability of the New Testament has been to frustrate the attackers because again and again, the scripture has stood up to their challenges. Bruce Feiler wrote a New York Times bestseller a number of years ago. It's called Walking the Bible. Fascinating book. Some of you may have read it. And he goes to the Holy Land and he kind of walks through all the places where the Bible is set. And at one point, Bruce asked Eliezer Oren, he's at the University of the Negev, is perhaps the leading archaeologist in the world, He asked him how his research has affected his evaluation of the Hebrew scriptures. Okay, you've done all this research. How has that affected you? And Oren made a very interesting (laughs) remark. His response was fascinating. He said at first, as a young scholar, he was skeptical. He was kind of rebellious, kind of in a dismissive phase. But he said over time, his research caused him to give the utmost respect to the Hebrew scriptures. And so at the end of their conversation, Bruce asked him this, Again, this is one of the leading, if not the leading, archaeologists in the world. He said, can you give the Old Testament a grade in terms of archaeological accuracy? And then he writes, for the first time, Eleazar Oren, all morning, for the first time, he grinned and said, A++. Plus plus. Amazing. All right, how about a second objection you'll hear? Write this down. The Bible's full of contradictions that undermine its own authority. How many of you have heard that one before? I've heard that a number of times. It's a real important concern to address here. Let me give you an example of the type of thing that's often cited. All right. In Matthew chapter eight, Matthew talks about a centurion who goes to Jesus and asks Jesus to heal his servant. Well, Luke, he tells the same story over Luke chapter seven, only in Luke's version, he says the centurion sent some elders and they're the actual ones who pose the question to Jesus. So there are certain writers or thinkers who will say, see, this proves that the Bible cannot be the word of God because it contradicts itself. Now, this actually gets us into the nature of language and common everyday usage. I mean, first of all, even in our day, different people summarize stories in different ways. I mean, a reporter may say the president announced today when the words may have been written by a speechwriter and pronounced by a press secretary, but we all understand that that's not a lie or a contradiction. You see, there are different ways of telling a story. It doesn't mean the story didn't happen. And beyond that, it's precisely this kind of detail that makes the gospel account so, so compelling. And here's what I mean by this. If you wanna believe that the resurrection did not happen, then you pretty much have to believe that at some point in time, the writing of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John involved a group of guys getting together and making something up. And if they did that, then this is exactly the kind of thing they would not have done. They would have airbrushed out all the details in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to make everything look perfectly smooth and identical. But instead, what we find are different angles and different perspectives on the same story, some with more details, some with less. You know, Matthew and Mark say there was an angel at the tomb. Luke and John say there were two angels. Okay, both can be correct. One just gets more specific. Matthew says, Peter denied Jesus after the rooster crowed once. Mark says the rooster crowed twice. Again, same thing. Even more compelling, the gospel accounts say that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. If you know anything about first century Israel, you would know that women weren't even allowed to give testimony in a legal court of law. So if you're making up a story for first century Israelites, you would never say the resurrection was witnessed first by women. That would have slammed your credibility. I think it's very, very clear that the gospel writers and then the early church in preserving them, they were scrupulous about preserving the actual accounts of eyewitnesses. And it's fascinating to me that those who are experts, those who are very gifted at analyzing testimonies in a court of law, like attorneys, lawyers, judges, some of the most brilliant legal minds in history have written volumes and volumes about the veracity of the gospel accounts because they recognize that when you get eyewitnesses together, they don't always see or describe the same event the same way. They'll differ on little details because they're looking at it from a different perspective or they're giving attention to different things. Doesn't mean they're not reliable or the story didn't happen. In fact, it's precisely when every detail given by every person is identical that investigators get suspicious, start to think that people have cooked something up. So the fact that the gospel accounts have precisely this kind of attention to detail and differing perspectives that all say dead man rises from the tomb, that just smacks of historicity. All right, let's move on. A third objection. Well, you know what? We no longer have the original copies of the manuscripts of the Bible, and therefore all kinds of errors or legends may have been written into the copies we have. All right, you all know that in the ancient world, there were no printing presses. Okay, and books copied on scrolls, they could be 20 or 30 feet long. So you say, how do we know that we have accurate copies? Well, <clears throat> there's a little exercise here. Let's compare the Bible to other works of antiquity that we still consider to be reliable. We'll start with this one, Julius Caesar's The Gaelic Wars. Okay, we have 10 and keep in mind these numbers here pay attention to this we have 10 relatively ancient manuscripts in existence and the earliest of them there's a 1000 year gap between when caesar died and when that manuscript was copied 1000 year gap pliny the younger's natural history we have 7 manuscripts earliest one 750 years after he died herodotus's history 8 manuscripts earliest one 1350 years after he died. Tacitus is the annals. We have 20 ancient manuscripts. Oldest one, a thousand years after he died. Twilight, we have over 100 million sold. Totally irrelevant, but tragic, okay? Making sure you're paying attention. All right, you got that? Now, let's turn to the New Testament text. Bruce Metzger, he's like the dean of this stuff, great Princeton scholar. He notes this, now keep in mind, what, what do we have here? The closest gap was 750 years in the secular world, 20 manuscripts. We have 5,664 Greek manuscripts going way back within decades of the life of Jesus. Okay, add to that another eight to 10,000 Latin Vulgate manuscripts, another 8,000 Ethiopian, Slavic, Armenian ones, over 24,000 ancient manuscripts in existence. Wow. Okay, you say, well, that's the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? Well, until about a century ago, the earliest manuscript of the Old Testament we have was from 900 AD. Okay, that's like a thousand years after the New Testament was written. But then came a big finding in the mid 20th century. Anybody here ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, they were discovered in a cave near the Dead Sea. Right, not a trick question. You guys are good. All right even more specific. Look at that. Now, the big significance of this finding was the remarkable similarity between the texts in the Dead Sea Scroll, like the book of Isaiah, and the copies that were written 900 years later. Incredibly, I mean incredibly accurate. And not just that, 100 years ago, there were liberal scholars who would say the Hebrew religion, the Hebrew scriptures, they didn't get compiled. They weren't even written down until 300 B.C., In other words, just legend. Didn't happen. That theory is a joke today. Because in 1979, a man by the name of Gabriel Barkay found what one archaeological review called one of the top 10 findings of the 20th century. It was two pieces of rolled silver, about the size of cigarette butts. And they were so old, it took them three years just to unroll them. Then it took them another three years to treat them with chemicals to be able to read the words on there. And the first word they were able to read was the word Yahweh. It was from the great blessing in the book of Numbers the Lord bless you and keep you. 2,600 years old. It was 2,600 years old. In other words, this thing was floating around. It was in existence 300 years before liberal scholars said it possibly could have even been written down. You know, all this to say, there is no other document of antiquity that even comes close to being in the same category as the Bible when it comes to manuscript evidence and support. Okay, fourth objection. How about this one? Science has proven you cannot take the Bible literally. Again, a very important question. I mean, science has enormous authority, prestige in our day. So let's talk for a moment, first of all, about what it means to take the Bible literally. Literally. It doesn't mean, as folks often think, to read it in a thoughtless, careless, anti-intellectual kind of way. You know, the Bible's filled with many different books written by many different authors in many different genres. It's got poetry, narratives. It has parables, letters. It has proverbs. And to read it literally, you know what that means? That means that you try to find out what the author intended his audience to understand. So for example, sometimes you'll hear this. Okay, you'll hear that to read the Bible literally means you have to understand the word day in Hebrew every time it's there as a literal 24 hour period of time. So, for example, in Genesis, in the creation account, that has to refer to six literal 24 hour days. Now, I would say that may be true or it may not be true based on the Hebrew language. But I know that there are a lot of scientists who insist that, you know what, the universe, our planet Earth is 14 billion years old. And so they just look at Genesis and from the get-go say, well, that's wrong. And they throw the whole Bible out. Now, I am very, very aware that different Christian scholars interpret Genesis differently. I'm also aware that Christians in the field of science, they debate the actual age of the Earth. And I'm not going to get into that, right? People are way smarter than I am have gotten into that whole debate. But suffice it to say that the Bible itself, okay, it uses that word day metaphorically to represent a period of time. It's part of the Hebrew language. Like in Ecclesiastes, it says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Okay, clearly the writer is not saying a literal 24-hour period in an extended season of prosperity. Also in Genesis 1, we're told the sun doesn't get created until which day? Anybody know? The fourth day. He created the greater light to govern the day. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Okay, even in the ancient world, they knew that literal days depended upon the sun. And yet that word day was used before the sun even got created. So it could refer to a 24-hour 24, 24 day or not. Okay, My point is not to argue that. I have my own opinions on that. My point is not to argue that point. It's simply to say that we need to read the Bible, when we read it literally, to read it thoughtfully. We have to consider, how is this word used in its original language, in its original context? And so often, I think many apparent contradictions that we see can be solved by linguistics if we look very carefully at the text. And if we do that, there's no being at odds with the scientific method. There's no being at odds with truth. Okay? Let's move on. A fifth objection doesn't the Bible support regressive practices like violence or slavery? Okay, what often falsely appear like problems to people really come from a lack of understanding of how to interpret the Bible, how to read it in its historical and cultural context. I think it's important for people, believers or not, to be able to read, study, and appropriate this book. Let me just say a quick word on this. Most people are familiar with the statement, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? It's from Exodus 21. Now, a lot of people in our day will see that and go, see, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, what a bloody, vengeful way to live. The Bible must be pro-violence. Okay, no. Go back to ancient times and think about this. There are no squad cars driving on the roads, no police departments, no law enforcement infrastructure like we think of it today, right? If you hurt me, I can do anything in my power to hurt you back as much as I want to. In that world, you see, Exodus 21 is actually laying the foundation for proportional justice. Unlimited vengeance is no longer allowed. You knock out my tooth, I don't get to kill you. Okay, the punishment has to fit the crime. It's actually an enormous step forward in the direction of justice for the ancient world. And then we come to another giant step forward with Jesus. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, love your enemies." Now, when Jesus says, but, he's not saying Moses got it wrong. He's saying the ultimate value that Moses was leading Israel toward one step at a time was the value of love. So, for example, you come to something like slavery. Okay, in the early 1800s in the South, there were people who said, you know what? The Bible says slaves, obey your masters, so the Bible supports slavery. But at the same time, those who are opposed to slavery, they based their opposition on this book right here. How do we reconcile that? Well, for one thing, slavery in America was based on racism. Okay, even people who defended it biblically, they never said, let's make white people slaves because that's a good idea. All right. And in the ancient world, slavery was not racially targeted. That was a big part of the evil of slavery in America. Also in the ancient world, every major culture had slavery. There was no group of people, no atheists, no pagans, nobody who said we have no slaves. It was deeply woven into the economic and social structure of the ancient world. But then there's this tiny corner of the world, Israel. And all of a sudden, here comes the law of Moses. And once again, in a real context, slavery is now to be limited. The law of Moses said that after six years, what would happen? The slave was to be set free. And the power a slave could have over a master is to be limited to certain actions. The punishment a master can inflict upon a slave is to be limited. And when the slave is set free, he's to be given gifts. The Old Testament is limiting, subverting this practice of slavery. And over the years, as the church understood that all people are created in God's image and Jesus died for all people, Paul would go on to say this, now in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek neither slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you study history, you'll recognize that it was the power of this book more than any other idea or power that led to the worldwide movement to get rid of slavery. And when you look at the social practices in the ancient world, monarchy, patriarchy, whatever, you must look at them in that light. Okay, one final objection to the Bible. If I start taking the Bible seriously, it might interfere with my plans for my life. Well, I can't help you with that one. Sorry. It will interfere with the plans for your life. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You know, a strange thing about this book, it has a power to it. I think I'm going to read it and it starts reading me. I think I'm going to judge it and it starts judging me. There's never been a book like this book right here. And I know that oftentimes people get frustrated by the Bible. A lot of why it seems so strange to us, especially the Old Testament, is because it's ancient and we're not used to reading ancient stuff right? The ancient world is filled with sacrifices, polygamy, ideas of uncleanness, odd customs. And and so we read it and we think, why was life so weird back then? (laughs) I'll tell you a little secret. It wasn't, okay? The only difference is we live now, so we think we are not weird. I guarantee you something. (laughs) Have people fast forward 2,000 years and then watch reruns of The Bachelor or, (laughs) Right? YouTube videos of treadmill dancers and skiing squirrels. Listen to the music of somebody named Lady Gaga, right? You think they're gonna say we were normal in our day? You see, since the Enlightenment, (laughs) that's an interesting phrase for an era, isn't it? The Enlightenment. I think we're guilty of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. But since the Enlightenment, the assumption has been that we don't have to study or learn from the past because we are morally, intellectually superior just by virtue of when we live. Well, if that's the case, then tell me, what is the book, source, authority, idea that you want to base your one and only life on that you think will hold up in 2,000 years, 200,000 years, 2 million years? This book changed the world, and it didn't do so by accident. It was written by real people to a real world in a real historical time and place. A man by the name of Augustine heard a voice say, take it and read. And he did. And the history of Western civilization was never the same. A man by the name of John Wesley heard its words being explained. And he said, his heart was strangely warmed. And 18th century England was never the same. Never been a book like this book. So read it, people. Read it with intensity. Read it with a humble spirit. Read it and ask God, God, would you meet me in this book? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, as one who is skeptical by nature myself, I've asked these questions. I've doubted you. I've doubted your word. And every time as I've dug deeper and deeper and deeper, your word has proven to be true. Your word is perfect. Your word is inerrant. And I thank you so much that the more historians and archaeologists dig and dig and dig, the more your truth is confirmed. And as we look into apparent contradictions, we find now they're just describing different things in different ways. God, I thank you that you haven't left us with 10 or 20 copies that are somehow hundreds or thousands of years removed, but rather 24,000 manuscripts, some within decades of the life of Jesus, just to strengthen our faith and our trust in your word. God, I thank you that indeed science has not disproven the scriptures. That if there's some kind of conflict there, it's either our failure to understand the world around us or our failure to understand what you meant in your word. And finally, God, I thank you that over time, slowly but surely, as the church has gotten a clue, we have been able to use your word to change a lot of the evils of society. And in fact, you have transformed this world through the principles in your book. But God, it's one thing to know all these truths, to believe all these truths, to defend all these truths. It's another thing to live them. God, I pray that that would be our focus because that's why you've given us your word as something we can depend on in a very undependable world, something we can trust, something we can live by, something that can transform our lives. So this morning, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your scriptures. It's in Jesus' name,